since so many people complained that we didn't have any good theme music, we decided that you needed theme music for this. And so there you go. The child playing the harmonica while the St. Bernard howls. Welcome to episode two of the Practical Theology Podcast. My name is Michael. I am here joined by Lou. We can never go back to Sicily again. Savala. Hello, everybody. (laughs) And we have gathered together this week to tell you that if your truth and my truth disagree, your truth is wrong, heretic, and you just need to get over yourself. Now, why in the world do I get to say that? What gives me the right to declare that I have any earthly idea whatsoever about what's going on in this world? Well, I'm going to tell you what gives me that right. And it's 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, you followed my teaching Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. That's a list. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. That's why I can tell you that if your truth disagrees with my truth, that your truth is wrong, because you don't get a truth outside of my truth, because my truth is grounded in the sovereign creator of the universe, God himself. Why do I say that? Because Paul says that. Well, why does Paul get to say that? Because that's what Jesus claimed. This is our truth claim going back to the beginning. Now, this matters because our faith is not grounded necessarily in ideas. It is grounded in a Savior, and that Savior is revealed in a book, an objective place that we can go. We started out last week trying to show that the basis for our faith is grounded in the story of Scripture from beginning to end, that God has been demonstrating who he is, what he is doing, and how he is doing that through a revelation that is written down. Now, do we have everything that God has ever said to everyone everywhere written down in a book? No, we do not. And I don't think we do either. That would be ridiculous, although it may not be ridiculous. It's possible God gave us everything, but I can't make that statement. What I can say is that everything we need for faith and practice is written down in a book because God has not left us unequipped, unprepared, and unaware of what we need. Hence the punchline, the part of this verse you all know. All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Now, don't miss where that idea comes from, though. This is not a man who has had everything in life go peachy for him. Paul literally just recounted sufferings. Where? Everywhere. Everywhere Everywhere this dude goes, somebody's trying to kill him. What preserves him and perseveres him through that? The grace of God, the work of God, and what carries him through is the word of God. The objective grounding in the promises. The truth of God revealed in scripture. Now I know what you're saying. Well, that's just how you read it. No, that's how history has read it down through the ages. I have a question. 
when Uh-oh. when Paul is talking about Scripture here, what what is he talking about, Michael? He's talking about the revealed Word of God, what we would call the Old Testament. It's amazing. Well, it's not really amazing because what we have is a, and this is where we where we left off a little bit last week. We have a book without an ending in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have a book without a beginning. We have a singular revelation, though. The New Testament builds upon the revelation of God contained within the Old Testament. But, so, uh, but I have I have another stupid question. Uh, aren't, aren't, aren't we supposed to unhitch from all of those things? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now you're going to get me to throw things at you, and that's never good. Okay. No, we can't unhitch because if we were to unhitch, what we would be doing is removing the grounding for how do I know God perseveres? If I don't have an Old Testament, all I end up with is a Savior popping up out of the middle of nowhere going, hey guys, I'm God, follow me. Um, we, we have those lovely jackets that zip in the back with no sleeves and in the rubber rooms for those people. Oh, okay. So it is important to every aspect of our life. Every, every. What tells me who God is? It's the consistent revelation of his character. In the Old Testament. Yes, so Leviticus tells me that God is holy. Uh, Abraham tells God, you know, you are the just judge. The Psalms praise him. But how do we know that what is written down is true? That's a good question. We have the revealed history. That's right. We have the consistent, continual, I need another C to be a good Baptist and I don't have one. Oh, well. We have a continued and a consistent, no, I don't have one, revelation of God that shows that he actually keeps these things. How do I know he's loving? Because I can see his love poured on a people who do not deserve it. How do I know he's patient? Because I'd have killed him. Let's be honest. I'd have killed him. You'd have killed him. Everybody listening to this would have killed everybody every single day. Mm-hmm. Be like, you want more water from a rock? I'll give you some water from a rock, and then I'll give you the rock too. Yeah. That would have been us. <laughs> like there would have been daily smitings. You know, there'd have been the 9 a.m. smiting, the 9.05 smiting, the 9.10 smiting. But God doesn't do this. Hence, we can see his patience. How do I know he's gracious? Well, because he's promised in the midst of sin, and degradation of humanity. He's promised a redeemer. And then throughout the Old Testament, he is working and arranging humanity and human history so that he can bring about this redeemer. Yes. That's grace in action. How are these people saved? Well, who's the good guy in the Old Testament? I mean, well, Abraham was awesome, right? Here, oh. sleep with my wife. I don't care. Right. She's my sister. I mean, Noah gets off the boat for five minutes. Yes, Noah had seen some stuff. I get that. But Noah's off the boat for five minutes. He's like, I need a drink. I don't need a little drink. I need a big one. Like one of those Applebee's, like margaritas the size of your head drinks. Right. I mean, Samson. Um, why do the names just want to run right out of my head? Um, Gideon. David. Solomon. There are no good guys in this story. There's no, none of these people, when they showed up at your house, you'd be like, you can marry my daughter. There are none good except God. Exactly. And how do I know that? Because he's demonstrated that and shown it on a regular basis continually. Not just some of the time, but all of the time. And that's part of what's going on here. And part of why this thing is so important to us on a daily basis is that God has prepared us, given us a word that is objective, grounded in history. If you're hearing rustling in the background, because we are a professionally run show with stagehands and all the like, the batteries on one of our microphones is dying and now I have to change it on the fly while trying to keep a train of thought. So you're about to see how fried my brains really are on a regular basis. What we have, though, in the Old Testament is 
a preparation of God's people so that they would know his work, know his revelation, see it, understand it, and then apply it, which is what we're trying to do on a regular basis still today. So Paul can be adequate and equipped because he has seen God on the move at work throughout history and that working has been good it has been gracious and consistent so that when he points his followers to it he's not just pointing them to what he has taught how did timothy learn as he grew up timothy isn't a blank slate when paul finds him timothy has what jewish background a grounding in the test in the old testament a grounding in the scriptures he knows them and paul reminds him of that be be mindful of the things that you have learned and how you learned them because that learning was good now you take those things in light of the revelation of christ and you apply them going forward so as a small child he learned the scriptures the hebrew scriptures mm-hmm. the tanakh um, so I guess the question, uh, it, it, again, is did, did the early New Testament writers, did they quote from the Old Testament? Did they unhitch from the Old Testament? Excuse me. They couldn't. They, they absolutely couldn't. I mean, again, we talked about this. When Peter goes to preach at Pentecost, what does he do? He goes to Joel. When James is expounding First letter of the New Testament, if you want to argue with me on that, Michael at practicaltheologyministries.com, you can email me and I'll be happy to argue with you. James, first written book of the New Testament. James doesn't quote directly from the Old Testament, but it's all throughout. I mean, if you want to understand James, understand the book of Proverbs, the book of Psalms, and the Sermon on the Mount. And if you can understand those three things, you can see the grounding of what James is teaching and the foundation he's building upon. Peter quotes from Leviticus, quotes from throughout the Old Testament. Um, The book of Hebrews, which I still contend is a sermon of Paul, is preached basically on what? The consistent total revelation of the Old Testament, going from creation, from who Christ is at the beginning, to the work that he does as the intercessor and the sacrifice, to the understanding of the tabernacle as it's pointed out in um, Exodus and Numbers. All of that is given... And it is quoted consistently. Jude points back to the Old Testament. Um, Jesus in his teachings is quoting from the Old Testament. You have heard that it is said, but I say to you. What is, when he says you have heard that it is said, what's he start quoting? He starts quoting his Old Testament. It's complete. It is throughout. And it just is unavoidable that there is a totality to the scriptures, a unity that we, as we read through the New Testament, are building upon a tradition and a history now, they are not infallible, but they are there so that when we read, we have to ground our reading and our understanding in that tradition in history. Meaning, if you pick up a New Testament book and you read it and you come up with a teaching and you are the first person in 2,000 years to come up with that teaching from that text, I have really bad news for you. You're wrong. Because not everyone that came before you was a dunderhead. Not everyone who came before you didn't understand it. And now that we have been blessed with you, we can finally understand what this text is about. No. Our first guide is, how has this been historically understood? How has this been historically applied? This is why study Bibles are actually a good thing. Because they give you historically grounded cross-references for what is this talking about in the Old Testament? What is this talking about in other parts of the New Testament? How do we actually deal with with this and apply this and how have church men seen this and understood it going back you can't just pick up a new testament book and go there it is we got this if you do what you're saying is i'm the smart one i am the key that everybody else needs to use to open the lock of revelation of god now what does that sound like in church history 
That's unlike any possible heresy we may have ever encountered before in church history. The Marcionites. Well, it's the Marcionites, but it's also the idea of secret knowledge. Oh, the Gnosticism. It's the Gnostics. Yeah. Yeah, proto-Gnosticism. Yeah, now this is this is one of those heresies that you, if you thought Marcion was your buddy and that, that he just won't die, the Gnostics are even worse. The idea of secret knowledge, revealed wills to special people. You know, we know, you don't know. Right. So if you become part of us, guess what you will? You'll know. Now you'll know. Right. Now, if you have ever encountered New Age philosophy... If you have ever encountered, ever encountered the other gospels of Jesus, you have encountered Gnosticism. If you have encountered anyone telling you, well, I'm just living my truth, you've encountered a Gnostic. They may not call themselves a Gnostic, but they are Gnostics. From the Greek word uh, to know or to understand, they claim to have some special knowledge. When someone in the world looks at you today, because in our postmodern world, someone will eventually look at you and go, well, I would like to speak to my truth. That's subjective. Absolutely. And what is it based on? It's based on my experience, my knowledge, and my understanding of the world. But is there an objective truth? Yes, and it has been revealed in God. See, God is our starting point. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We don't seek to prove God. We don't seek to uh, explain him in that manner. We just know that he's there. To deny that God is there is like denying the nose on your face. It's there. You may not be able to look at it 24-7, but you know that it's there. This is why those that are reveling in their sin are so angry at the church and so adamant that the church affirmed them. Because what they really want is for someone in the church to look at them and go, you're warring against God, and that's okay. We understand and we affirm your war against God. Okay, that's terrible. It sounds dumb when you say it that way, but that's what the world is doing when it's shaking its fist at God and asking for you to say my sin is okay. Because what they want you to do is say that the way you have chosen to live your life where you are the center of the universe is good and it is right. See, we're all Gnostics now in that regard. We all want to have a little secret sauce sprinkled on life so that we feel like we have the thing that explains the world for us. Go ahead. Explain the world apart from God. Make sense of this place. I think it's impossible to do without God. I think that nature and all things around us speak to a first initiator, somebody who created all these things. Life is too complex. There's nothing <laughs> that, uh, uh, that we can see in science that can be readily observed. The, the, the thought of evolution uh, is, is ludicrous. I mean, none of these things, the basis of sci- the scientific method is it's got to be repeatable and observable. Nobody has ever observed one species, you know, beginning to change to another species. It's just not possible. So it takes more faith to be an atheist who believes in evolution than it does to be someone who is a a believer in God and in the Word of God. See, and that faith is readily accessible. Why? Because what are they asking you to do? They're asking you to be your source of authority and knowledge. What modern evolutionary science is really giving you is a Gnostic worldview. It's basically saying that we special people in our ivory towers, we know these things, and we can unearth the things that are under the ground, and we can read them, and we can interpret them. And when you read them and you interpret them, you're doing it wrong. And the reason we know you're doing it wrong is because you're not doing it the way we do it. And the way that the answers that we got are right, so the answers that you got are wrong. 
that's not how science is done. That's not how any objective knowledge, any epistemology, the study of how we know things, that's not how any epistemological basis is actually formed. It's supposed to be formed on an objective standard. Now, what's what's our most fundamental objective knowledge in all of creation? That there is a God. That there is a God. Right. Therefore, everything else must build out from him. Now, if there is a God, can that God communicate to me? Absolutely. I mean, it's inerrant, an inherent in, in who we are. We, we as human beings, we communicate, we talk. Yes. Why wouldn't the God that created us why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he communicate with us? I mean, that's the basis of a lot of uh, of religions in, in Hinduism, and and that there is this first creator God who's disinterested in his creation. Overgrown deism, right? The the uh, the blind watchmaker. We wind it up, we set it off, and then it's like interstellar cable where God just can't change the channel or something. See, that's doesn't that does not work because it denies the fundamental reality that God exists. And he has revealed himself. See, this was Paul's fundamental reality. This was Timothy's fundamental reality. That not only does God exist, not only has he revealed himself, but he has done so in an intelligible manner. Meaning, when I read my Bible, I'm not, you know, playing, like, if you remember the old alphabet serial, and you used to pour it out, and then you'd try to, like, make words in the spoon, and every once in a while, a couple of letters would float to you, and you'd be like, oh, I got a word in my cereal. What does it mean? It means I got a word in my cereal because the letters lined up. That's not how God does revelation. He actually interjects himself into humanity's history and says, hey, write this down. So I can't just open the Bible up to a specific, you know, just randomly open the Bible and say, this is God's word for me today. Only if it says, and Judas hanged himself. Oh, therefore go and do the same, right? (laughs) See, I'm going to make sure you're paying attention. But, I mean, that's, but see, how ridiculous does that sound? Because what you're basically saying is that the Bible has a secret handshake, some secret code that I'm going to decipher, or the Holy Spirit. See, this is how it becomes really insidious. The Holy Spirit will bring to my understanding some secret meaning that is only there for me. Welcome to Gnosticism. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there at home thinking, well, how, you know, I, I've been watching the History Channel a lot lately. First of all, stop that, especially when the religious stuff comes up. Don't do it. I know you want to hate watch. You just want to watch it so you can yell at your television. It's not good for your blood pressure. It's not good for your stress. And yes, I'm, I'm talking about myself too. So just change the channel. But I know you're sitting there going, I've watched the History Channel, and they have told me how ridiculous and unreliable the Bible is because there are just these hundreds of thousands of variants in the Bible. So, okay, do we have a number? Did we write that down? It's 400,000. 400,000. Oh, see, the last time I looked, I thought it was like 330 or something. Oh. Man, we, there's more, more variants in the Bible than there are McDonald's. That's, that's impressive. Oh, I haven't counted the McDonald's, but that's tragic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I, Seven, but but that, that number doesn't represent errors in the scripture per se. <gasps> but no, no, see, it's a variant, and by definition, a variant has to be an error because that's how the world works, Lou. Right, right. <laughs> you know, we were talking about this at lunch today, and, and we talked about Wycliffe, and, and it was amazing. The man, mis- you know, he spelled his name 11 different ways. Yeah, by his own hand, and, it, and okay, you'll have to go do your research. It's either 11 or 13. We might like 13 better because it's even more. But it's somewhere in that ballpark. John Wycliffe spelt his own name almost a dozen different ways. That's interesting. 
I mean, my kids would love that rundown as they're learning to write things out and, and, and compose, you know, uh, literary works that are appropriate to their seven and eight-year-old brains. They're like, I can just spell it however I want? No, no, you can't. Why? Because we have a standardization of language that has not existed in human history. So when we're talking about textual variants, so 400 and some odd thousand variants, how many of them, or ballpark, how many of them are literally just differences in spellings of a word? Oh, about 70% from my <laughs> estimation. That's a lot. And, you know, when I, my first semester of Greek, we get the Greek spoon-fed to us in mm -hmm. a very uh, controlled way. And we can see the words written in Greek. They, are, they have punctuation. They have capital. They have lowercase. When I first saw my very first true manuscript of New Testament. <laughs> it's I, an, it I almost an, cried. It, it, it's, 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 it's stressful, isn't it? It's like it was almost unintelligible. Attack. I mean, you, you really have to know what you're looking at to discern what the words are. It's like a giant crossword puzzle. Yeah. All capital letters, no spacing, no punctuation. Yeah, there's no commas. Oh, for the love of a comma when trying to read a Pauline letter. Right. Yeah, right. So, so what we've got is, okay, so 70% of these are misspellings or the letter Grammar. was moved or a word was left out. Now, how many of them are like big chunks? Because I think we can probably name off a couple of the biggins. I mean, things that are actual, that might actually be theological issues. Yeah, the pricopria adultery, um, that, that's one issue in the scriptures. Uh, what, what's it, another couple of them? That you uh, so pericope uh, adultery is the story of the woman caught in adultery, end mm -hmm. of John 7, beginning of John 8. Mm -hmm. Depending on which manuscript Mark. you read, it either is in the, uh, it's either there in John. Mm -hmm. Some manuscripts have it in different places in Luke. Mm -hmm. You have the longer ending of Mark. Yep. You have the, uh, the comma Johannum yes. in 1 uh, in John 5. To, depending on whether or not you like this, the description of the witnesses of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just for the sake of argument say that those are all later editions. I happen to think that is correct, but let's just say that those are all later editions. Is there anything in these quote-unquote discrepancies or big chunks that if we just took them out of the Bible, what have we lost? Uh, they don't affect anything uh, as far as salvifically. Uh, they don't change our doctrines at all. And, and a lot of them are just copyist errors. Uh, somebody got a copy of a manuscript and it was in there and they didn't, or if it was in the margins and they didn't know whether to include or exclude it, they erred on the, on the side of including it so that we wouldn't lose certain things. And, and that's good. And that's part of it. Most of these are, they're, they're little simple things that they do not undermine any understanding of scripture. They do not take away from any core doctrine of Christianity. They are in and of themselves Basically, arguments for linguists and historians to get into their ivory towers and argue with each other about and see which one is right. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't say that to minimize the work of textual criticism in the work in the manuscripts. We need that work. It's Indeed. good. It's helpful. But at the same time, your New Testament text is more reliable than any ancient book, and it's not even close. The number of manuscripts that we have, the number of, the fact that we can even say there's 400,000 variants is because we have thousands of manuscripts that we can compare them to. Right. We have so much work that we can look in. We are more certain of the reading of, New, of the New Testament than we are of the existence of Julius Caesar. Yeah, and that's important. Um, as far as the Greek manuscripts are concerned, we have close to 6,000 of them. Now, when you start to take into consideration the other manuscripts that are in other languages, Coptic and things like that. Old Syriac. Old Syriac. We have tens of thousands of manuscripts that they all 
They all say the same things. So so when someone looks at you and goes, well, can you be really certain that your Bible said that? The answer is yes. Absolutely. Yes, I can. Because here's the other thing. We have it here somewhere. The best description I've ever been given about the New Testament is we have a thousand piece puzzle and we have 1200 pieces. Meaning they're all there. We just got to figure out sometimes which one's the one that goes there. If anything, we have too much information, which leads to too much skepticism, in my opinion. But what this gives us is a clear understanding of who Christ is. What did he do? What did the apostles teach? What did the early church do? How did they teach? How did they grow? How did they function? Where did they go? What is expected of us as believers down through the ages? This is all in there. This is what we mean when we talk about for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We have all of this at our disposal. And for the handful of places that we are legitimately dealing in actual questions— the majority of them are actually simple to explain. And I'll give you an example of one because I've actually been working on it this week. So when dealing with the crucifixion of Jesus, Mark 15, specifically verse 25, tells you that Jesus was crucified at about the third hour. Excuse me, one second. Now, we know that Mark is reckoning time in the, in the Jewish system, which starts at sunset and then counts out. No, this is not an exact science. Hence the reason, about the third hour. So the third hour would have run anywhere from 9 a.m.-ish to noon-ish, or a better way of saying that would be mid-morning to midday. Now, John tells you that the, the trials with Pilate are going on at about the sixth hour. Now, that could be a problem, isn't it? Because if we got Jesus on the cross at mid-morning, but we're closing in on midday, and we're still having trials going on, then one of these guys is wrong, right? See, Sounds like it. Yeah. This is a discrepancy. Now, there are actually two really easy explanations for this, depending on which one you like, and I will leave it up to you to pick whichever one you like. Just pick it and run with it, because it's fun. We know that Mark, chronicling the sermons of Peter, is reckoning according to a Jewish system. So sunrise marks the beginning of the day. So again, third hour would be mid-morning. Now here's the really fun part because this is for one of your solutions. Mid-morning is really anywhere from 9 to 10.30-ish because if I look at the clock and think it's mid-morning because my stomach's rumbling and you look at the clock and think it's mid-morning and your stomach's not rumbling, we may not be looking at the, at the clock at the same time. It's, just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a personal experience, so to speak. Mm-hmm. One of us is wrong about how we designate this. So what we're dealing in is, is if Mark is using that, that system, then we're somewhere around nine-ish for that crucifixion. If John is using that system, we're somewhere around noon. One, I don't actually think John is using that system because I think the consistent understanding of John's use of time in his gospel is actually according to the Roman watch system because John, here's your Bible trivia. What did John do for a living? Before he was an apostle, what was John's occupation? The apostle, John. What did he do for a living before he was an apostle? He's a fisherman. He and his brother were working with their father in fishing business. Um, Peter, one of their business partners, working in a fishing business. When was the majority of the fishing on the Sea of Galilee done in that time? It was done at night. Oh, I didn't know that. Fish gets to the market early in the morning when it is fresh. Hence the reason when you see Jesus walking along and they, they're reeling in their nets and they're winding them up and he tells them to put out and put the nets down. We've worked hard all 
night. Right. That was when the majority of fishing would have been done. So if you're going to do that, you keep a watch system, similar to how soldiers would. So you would be counting your day according to your watches. So when John is using his time frames, he's using them according to that system. So when he sees Jesus in John chapter 1, and they follow him, and it's about the 10th hour, and they spend the rest of the day with him. Does that make more sense if it's 10 a.m. or 4 p.m.? I think it makes more sense if it's 10 a.m. When they're traveling through Samaria, and he is weary from the journey because it's about the 6th hour. What is that? Hmm. See, now this is where it gets really fun. Because when John is working on his clocking system when he's at home, he's working on his overnight system. He's working on his watch system. When he's traveling from Jerusalem, whose time system is he using? Probably the Jewish. He's using the Jewish system. Yeah. So when he encounters the Samaritan woman, what is he doing? He's at noon because he started the day at daybreak the way everybody else would have started their day because he's not working, he's not fishing, so he's following along. That's why the Samaritan woman is at the well by herself because early in the morning and late at evening, everyone else would have gone to the well as well. So she's there by herself. It's the heat of the day. Jesus is weary. Now you come fast forward to John 19. What world is John operating in? Well, He's operating now in a Roman legal Roman, system. Yeah, the Roman legal system. So his trial, when does Jesus' trial start? Early in the morning. When would a Roman, uh, uh, Roman's day start? Around 6 a.m. when sunrise would come up. So what John is saying is that the trial is still going on in that early morning period. The trial is still occurring, it is still functioning, and that when we get to the crucifixion, we've now moved to what? Later on in the day. And now we're in line with Mark, and we're also in line with Matthew, who tells us that we've got darkness from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. Right. Matthew is using what system? He's reckoning from a Jewish system. Right. Now, if you don't like anything that I just said because you think I'm a lunatic, here's the other part. Is it possible that John is using the same time system as Mark, and they just both misread it? Yes. Because when Mark, Mark could be being conservative and saying it's about the third hour. It's about 9 a.m. Well, that could be anywhere from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Mm -hmm. John could be saying it's about the sixth hour, which could be anything from around 11 a.m. on. We could be talking about the same time period. Now, is that enough to make me go, oh, Bible's not true, Jesus is a fraud, and I can live however I want to because there's no hell? No. Oh. Does it make me question what I'm reading? Yes, that's a good thing. You should ask questions. You should study some of it. Again, if you don't like either of those answers, have fun. Research. Answers are there. If you don't like mine, find one you like and go with it. But actually do some of the work and some of the reading. Actually figure out what is trying to be communicated. Because the understanding of, ins of ins inspiration by God, the scriptures being God-breathed, inspired, given to us, means that they make sense. So if the problem is in my understanding, is that problem on God's side or, or my side? Usually it's on your side. Exactly. So it could be simply that I'm not reading them rightly, like I think most of us are doing with the time reckoning with John and Mark, or it could simply be because John didn't reckon it rightly. He didn't reckon the clock the same way Mark did. They're talking about the same time of day. They're just both understanding it differently. Now, does that make them both right? Yeah, well, I think, I think it does. It, it does from a certain point of view. What it makes them is both... It makes them both um, residents of their time. See, from our perspective, we go, well, they can't both be right, and that would be true because they can't both be right. One of them reckons the time wrong in that situation. But in their world, there is no 1015. 
Right. There is no 1017. There is no 1112. It's early morning. It's mid-morning. It's midday. It's mid-afternoon. It's early evening. And it's evening. Right. Those are your options. Right. Now pick one. They didn't have a Timex watch. Exactly. Right. So if two of us could be standing in the field and one of us goes, well, I think it's getting on about the middle of the day. Well, I think it's mid-morning. Well, maybe I had a bigger breakfast, and so I'm ready to do more work. Maybe you're just lazy, or maybe I'm just a nitwit. I don't know. We're both reckoning it for how we see it. Now, that doesn't make us both right. There is an objective time that Jesus went to the cross. There is an objective time that Christ has died for us. There is an objective time. Now, if the bystanders don't record that, does that mean it didn't happen? No, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. (laughs) That's the important part. Right. We have four witnesses of and this. that's why. Right. So uh, in any court of law, you know, when you bring forth witnesses and you hear the testimonies, they, they can vary. It doesn't mean they're all lying. It's just they're, they're, they're giving testimony from their perspective. Exactly. What they thought the time frame was. Exactly. So when John, so if John, now let's just say, is John wrong? Let's just, is, is John wrong about when Jesus went to the cross? It was it was mid-morning. John thinks it was later in the day. So is John wrong? No. I think objectively the answer would be yes. Because he would have misinterpreted the time frame. Does that mean John is unreliable? Well, no, it doesn't mean he's unreliable. But maybe his time frame was different from And that's from that my of, point. Of Mark. That, and this is my point about the discrepancies that right. we have to deal with. If, even if John records the time wrong, because he saw it wrongly, I think John. If I think if you put if you if you say John's reckoning according to the Jewish system, and John thinks that the trial is still going on as it's getting on towards the midday, I can I can sit there and say, well, I think John is wrong because I think we have other evidence that says that both Mark and Matthew say that he was crucified before that, and we have darkness starting around midday. So we can say John read read the time wrong. Okay, does that mean John was wrong about what happened? No, definitely. No, it means the he way was a witness to it. It's, it means the way he understood the day was different than the way that Matthew and Mark understood the day. Again, we are slaves to our clocks. I have a timer going right now. So tell me how long we've been on a subject so I can understand and make sure we don't, you know, try to talk for nine hours. We are slaves to this. New Testament writers were not. It's a different world. This is the other reason why it's important that we ground ourselves in the history and context of Scripture and not in our knowledge. Because when I try to read the Bible through my brain, my knowledge, and my understanding, what do I end up with? I end up with a Bible about who? You. Me. Yeah. Now, yeah. am I the star of the show? No. Only, only in your mind. I mean, <laughs> it- <laughs> well, in my mind, I'm always the star of the right. show. I yeah. love me some me. I need some good old Terrell Owens theology. I love me some me. No, that's not the point. The point, now, who does the scriptures glorify? It should glorify God. They should glorify God. So the minute they start glorifying me, what do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt? I have read something wrongly here. I have missed the mark. I have gone off the course. So as I'm dealing in an understanding of the New Testament, I don't read them from the standard of, I need modern, historical, measured accuracy. What I need is accuracy from their perspective and their point of view. I need accuracy the way that they would have defined it and the way that they would have understood it. And when I find that accuracy, which I think you do, because again, let's just say Jesus goes to the cross at 11.17 in 42 seconds. 
Right. Is it possible that John calls that midday and Mark calls that mid-morning? It is. Yes, it's very much possible that that's what occurs. Does that change anything about what Jesus has done? No. No. Does it change anything about the purpose that Jesus has accomplished? No. No, Does it change anything about who God is? No. Now, does it give some Yale professor in a classroom a place to go, well, the Bible is obviously not a reliable historical document? Yes, it gives him a basis to say that. Does that mean I have to listen to him? Oh, no. 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 Definitely not. No, it doesn't. Because, again, what is his starting assumption? His starting assumption is not the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of man. And anytime my starting point is the wisdom of man, what I've grounded myself in is this old historical heresy. Did God really Really say? say. Because this is the basis of the Gnostic movement. This is what secret knowledge and new age philosophy really brings to you is, are you sure that you know what this world is really about? Did God really say? Mm. Can you trust that idea? Do you know the whole story? And the answer from a biblical perspective is, yes. Yes, I do. I have everything that I need for faith and practice. I am adequate and equipped for every good work. Not some of my good works. Not most of my good works. For all of my good works. And who defines what my good works are? God alone. Now, And how does he define my good works? Through his word alone. Oh, it's amazing how these things keep coming yeah. back to this idea, isn't it? Yes, yes. I ultimately, of, of the Reformation, I am ultimately right? responsible for my life to God. Mm-hmm. And how do I know what he requires of me? Well, he wrote it down in a book, Michael. <laughs> now you sound like me. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, and, and that's the purpose of Scripture. It gives us a picture of the immutability of our God and... And, and it also gives us a picture of what we look like in the eyes of a God. And see, and that's the most important thing, because what is that picture? What do we look like in the eyes of God? Well... Apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we are woefully, woefully sinners. <laughs> and we know it. Yeah. We know it. All I mean, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and godliness of men. Our righteous deeds are as filthy, filthy rags, rags from Isaiah. Yeah, we know this. Yes. So even though we know this, what do we do? Well, we try to lie to ourselves, Michael. I mean, we, we try to make ourselves <laughs> we don't just feel try. better we don't about, try. We about the way we do things. We don't see ourselves in that light. We, we want to see ourselves as basically good. That's the humanist movement in the Renaissance. I mean, people were warring against this idea that we were woefully sinners. Mankind is, is at its basic uh, uh, existence, they were good. And what is that? What is that really hinting at? What is the base base heresy behind that under, behind that understanding? Did God really really say? say? Well, that's see see that's that's the lie of of, of the serpent yes. in the Garden of Eden. He hasn't gotten any new material. No, there's no. nothing new under the sun. Right. Solomon was right. Right. No, he has. But when when you challenge the fundamental definitions of humanity. What you're really challenging is, has God defined you rightly? Because God has defined you objectively in Scripture. You have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. So when you are weighed and measured in that way, when you war against that, what you're really saying is, I don't like what God has said and how he has said it about me. Therefore, I will change that. Well, what gives you the authority to do that? Well, because I'm a human being. That's just how we operate. 
Yeah, that's, there is Gnosticism raising its ugly heads. You don't have a word for it until right now. Now you do. It's Gnosticism. What you're really doing is saying that I know better because I am the important thing. I have been grounded in the knowledge of the world. I have an iPhone. I have a car and a house and I have central air conditioning and nobody else before me on planet Earth has had all of the things that I have had. That proves my moral and intellectual superiority, doesn't it? Only in your own mind, Michael. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and see, and this is what we keep coming back to. This is the lie. This is the grounding of how these ancient ideas and heresies weasel themselves into your brain and your thought process in a daily life. Now, what this looks like in practice, because remember our format. We introduce ourselves, we tell you what we're going to talk about, we run through the scripture, we give you some historical grounding, and then we try to apply that to our daily life. Now, we've done a lot of that kind of in an amalgous way today, which yeah. may be kind of a fun way to do it in the future. I don't know. We're still playing. It's a whole episode two, people. Cut us some slack. Mm. What, we're, what we're trying to do, though, is, okay, now that we've understood this historical problem, now that we have defined scripture rightly, now that we have even answered tough questions about scripture, even if I don't like the answers, I can sit there and say... Maybe John or Mark didn't reckon time the same way, but that doesn't change when Jesus went to the cross. They're not wrong. Their personal perspective was different. Now, now that I'm okay with that, and inhale, exhale, I'm okay with people actually getting things wrong and being recorded rightly. That's bizarre to say out loud, but it is. Then the understanding of inspiration behind Scripture, which is what 2 Timothy is really grounding, is that God has given you this word. If God has given me this word, then he has not given it in my context. He's given it to me in their context. And so my first step in living my life is not actually living it according to the world that I live in. Hmm? Yes, Scooby, we change our perspective because our perspective is ultimately grounded in a scriptural world that is ancient in its understanding of humanity. So our starting point is how did they understand us? How did they see us? What was the author trying to say? Exactly. Now, once I know what the author is telling me, I now take that understanding. Now I come back to my world. And I say, what has God said about me, and how do I live that in the place that I am now? So Solomon, when he's writing Ecclesiastes, is not writing about jet skis and boats and iPhones and all of that. But he is talking about being tested by all the pleasures of the world. While those pleasures may have changed, has the satisfaction they provided changed? No. No, I think we're basically the same kind of people. When we talk about the temptations that humans have faced down through the years. So Jesus wasn't tempted to go to a triple X movie theater, was he? No. No, he didn't, he didn't have that temptation. What was Jesus tempted to go to, um, you know, go to the local uh, uh, reservation casino and, and lay down his whole paycheck? Was Jesus tempted with that? No. No. But was Jesus tempted in all ways as we are and yet without sin? Absolutely. Yes. So has Jesus faced all the categories of temptation that we have faced? Yes. Yes, Yes, he has. So we don't read ourselves into the Bible. We read our understanding of the Bible back into the modern world. So I see how Jesus was tempted. And now I take that and move it forward. I think we've covered this. Did God really say? So when the the Harvard professor looks at you and goes, well, there's 400,000 textual variants in your Bible, and therefore you can't trust it. Well, 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 hold on, dude. Define a variant. Right. 
uh, define trust. Right. Well, they use those big numbers and they use those statistics to try and prove to people who don't, who aren't in the know, who haven't really even considered the possibility of a variant and what it means, or the fact that not everyone who copied down a New Testament uh, a passage of Scripture was a professional scribe. Yes. I mean, they made mistakes. There were bad, poor lighting. What it, he's really saying in that moment yeah. is, did God really say? Right. See, now, once you understand what the question right. actually is, now you're actually grounded to, to deal with it. So did God really say that you are a wretched, awful sinner? Absolutely. Yes, he did. Yep. Did he then provide for you a way of salvation? He sure did. Yes, he did. Has Christ taken away the reproach and the shame of your sin on the cross? Yes, yes, he has. Has he paid the penalty due for your sin? Yes, yes, he has. Has he granted you righteousness and standing and honor in the courts of God? Yes, yes, he has. Does any of that change because somebody misspelled the word grace in a letter somewhere 1,500 years ago? No. No. Does any of that change because Mark and John looked up at the sky and said, I think it's mid-morning. I think it's noon. No. No, it absolutely doesn't. None of that has changed. Does any of that change because Mark started counting at daylight and John started counting in the evening? No. None of that has changed. Who Christ is is a basis of, is grounded in who Christ is. God in flesh. Emmanuel. God with us. Because of that... His work is good. It is grounded rightly. And because God has been the guiding force of history, how do I know that? Because it's in an Old Testament and it it shows me his perseverance in spite of Mm -hmm. these people that he worked with. And yes, I use the term these people in a derogatory manner, just like I would about me. If If God was working on me with those things, he'd be using this person. So God accomplished this through these people. And he still was successful. Therefore, can God communicate his truth through his word to me in a context and in a way so that I can actually understand it and know what he said? Absolutely. Yes. And how do I know that he can do that? Because he actually did, it. did that. Yeah, did it. We can go through, we can dig, and we can answer these questions and these objections. Again, you may not like the answers. You may go, you know... Until today, I had no questions about that, and now I'm sitting here thinking about John 19 and Mark 15, and it's driving me crazy. To which I say, see, Lou's, it's driving Lou's phone crazy even. Lou's phone is like, I don't know what to do. See, my answer to that is, good. I want you to think about that. I want you to chew on that. And some of you may be going, but there are people who have walked away from God in the faith because of that. They departed from us. Because they were not of us. us, The ultimate goal is can you wrestle with these questions and still come back down on the side of God has preserved his word. God has inspired his word. God has given me what I need for faith and practice. God has equipped me for his good works. And all of these things will bear fruit and come to fruition because God is the one behind them and the one who is empowering me based on the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit going forward. And if you can answer yes to that, then good. You survived a challenge. You got a hard question. You answered it, and you moved on. This is part of Christian living. Part of dealing with ancient text in an ancient world is going, I have to be okay with a little bit of... And that's a technical theological term. I have to be okay with a little uneasiness Mm. because I was not standing there and they were not trying to give me Encyclopedia Britannica precision with an atomic clock. They were giving me an observation 
on an important event that demonstrates God's righteousness and salvation and grace to us. And that is the point. And when I miss that point, where I've fallen back into is, did God really say? All right. Now, I have said all of that. Is there anything we've missed? No. No, I think we've covered the, the whole gambit. All right. So let's summarize this, people. What have we learned today, children? God is the source of our knowledge of him and of everything else in this world. He's the beginning, the alpha, and the omega, and the end. Your Bible is reliable, period. I may not like the definition you've given me of reliable, but my Bible is reliable. Modern-day Gnostics are just as wrong now as they were back then. The lie of the garden has not gotten any truer in the last, oh, couple millennia. It's still a lie. And anything that is tugging and pulling you away from the truth of Scripture and away from the grounding in God is trying to pull you into the lie, into the deception of the serpent, and into the degradation that sin wishes to accomplish. Now, if you have more questions on this, again, you can contact me, Michael, at practicaltheologyministries.com. If you'd rather yell at Lou and tell him to talk more, it's Lou at practicaltheologyministries.com. If you want to yell at him and tell him to talk less, that's okay, too whichever you prefer. You can find us on Facebook at Practical Theology Ministries. You can follow us on Twitter, P underscore T underscore M tweets. You can find us on our website at practicaltheologyministries.com. Our monthly newsletter and theological journal, journal. oh, if I could speak English, yeah. we'd be all said it's, it's a journal. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a Kentucky journal. Um, our theological journal, the uh, Cal... Uh, Cal, uh, Cal I can't speak English all of a sudden. Spit it out. Oh my goodness. Calvary's Cavalry will be launching in the next couple of days with some stuff on covenantal theology, some work on manhood and womanhood, a Bible study in Colossians, issues on recovery ministry, and just general zany fun with scripture because it's good for you. You can find that all on the website again, practicaltheologyministries.com. In the meantime, until you hear from us again, Read your Bible. It's good for you. It is everything you need for faith and practice. It is from God. It is good, and it will grow you. God bless.